You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, unafraid witness, and uncommon community. If you have yet to do so, we would love to have you join us for worship in God's Word on Sunday mornings. For more information, visit us online at harvestniagara.ca. Thanks for listening. Hey, good morning. Welcome to Harvest this morning. We're so glad you've joined us today. Uh, It's our privilege to host you for our online church services. Uh, I pray your hearts are already being stirred for Jesus through the worship, and now you are eager and ready to be engaged in the Word of God. Mark chapter 10, verses 1 to 12 is where we're going to be, and you probably already gathered. This is an important and yet a sensitive topic uh, that we have today. It's really Jesus giving us the goods on marriage and divorce. Here's the truth. To follow Jesus, our series, follow the leader to follow Jesus, it involves loving him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. It involves pledging allegiance to him that you're going to follow him, but it also involves adopting all of his ways and all of his commands into our, our lives in every single way and in every single facet of life, including when it comes to marriage and divorce. Know this today, that God has a definitive plan for marriages that he definitively stated in his word for us. Marriage today is so misunderstood and misconstrued, and it's kind of baffling why, because for centuries, the path that God set for us was clear. It was obvious this is what marriage is, but in the last 22 years, we've wandered so far off the path into the woods that we've forgotten that there's a path there in the first place to lead us in the right direction. Where did this all go wrong? Well, 22 years ago in the Netherlands, the Netherlands signed a a policy that legitimized Cohabitation. In other other words, no longer did two have to be married to cohabitate. They could just get together and cohabitate without being married. And that kind of opened up the door for all other nations to follow. Then in 2001, Netherlands again uh, legalized same-sex marriage. And then that opened the door also for other countries to follow. Canada being the fourth one to follow in 2005 with the, the Civil Marriage Act. And so since those two monumental events, Pandora's box has opened. And the, our culture around us is running around in the woods trying to define and figure out what marriage is. Again, all the while forgetting that God has already established a path for us. And so our culture says the path is old school, it's outdated, it doesn't matter. And the mentality today is who knows and who cares and does it matter anyways. And what God's word says, God knows and we should care and it matters immensely what we believe about marriage and divorce. Even Christians are so confused with this topic that my heart for today's sermon would be to bring clarity because we need clarity. We need to know where God stands, where the church stands, and where I should stand. My heart would be to bring conviction because we need conviction to anchor our hearts on God and avoid all the noise of the world when it comes to this important topic. And our hearts need commitment to align with God no matter what the cost. So I'm praying today out of this sermon that we can grab some clarity, some conviction, and some commitment to follow God on the path of marriage and even in regards to divorce. My goal today is not to answer all of your questions. 
to cover every base, but to give you a biblical foundation and a Christian perspective on marriage. My heart today is that we'd take the world's glasses off and put on God's lens and see what God has for us when it comes to marriage and divorce. Let me start by praying because this is a message that I can't communicate in a way that's going to really hit the mark apart from Jesus Christ. You can't hear this message in a way that's gonna change your life apart from Jesus Christ. Let me stop and ask God to help us this morning understand Mark chapter 10, verses one to 12. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth that is contained in it. Thank you, God, that you've shown us exactly who you are You revealed to us exactly the way you've called us to live, not to limit us to, but to free us to know the fullness of life and the fullness of what it even means to walk in a married married relationship ordained by you. And so God, I pray for every heart in this, listening to this sermon right now, Father, would you draw us in? Would no one run away right now, but would you draw us in and would you show us the Father's heart for our lives when it comes to marriage and divorce? We love you, God. We're praying for significant realities in our lives today from the truth of your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, this morning I'm just going to flip this around for you. I'm going to actually preach uh, this passage, but I'm going to start with verses 6 to 8 to give you the foundation of marriage. Then I'm going to jump back to verses 1 to 5, and then I'm going to jump forward to verses 10 to 12. I don't usually do it that way, but just trust me on this. I feel the Lord leading me to first set the foundation for marriage before we get into uh, the, the do's and the don'ts of what God has ordained for us. Uh, so let's start here this morning, verse 6 of Mark chapter 10 with this point. Please write this down in your notes. God designed marriage to be a holy union between a man and a woman. God designed marriage to be a holy union between a man and a woman. Look what it says here with me in verse 6. Dave just read this a minute ago, but from the beginning of creation, God made them, notice, male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let man not separate or no man separate. Look at the beginning of this. It says, from the beginning of creation, from the beginning of time, from the moment man was breathed life into and woman was created, God instituted marriage. Marriage is his idea. It's his initiative. Someone didn't wake up one morning and be like, oh my goodness, like there's a, a beautiful woman. Maybe I should marry her. We should have kids together, call it a family, and live happily ever after. No one woke up one morning like, man, I mean, that guy is a stud. I, I wish I could live in his house and we could have kids and have a family and, and live our days together, living out uh, a family unit. No, this is God's idea. In fact, marriage was written to human, the human DNA And created within us as a central, as an integral part of our existence as individuals and as a society. We see marriage right from Genesis chapter 2, prominent in the life of a man and woman. Listen to what it says in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Isn't it interesting that God breathed life into man then took a rib out of man and made woman and then he brought them back together. Man and woman were created to be together. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. The natural state of man and woman. Notice in this, uh, two genders in this text in Matthew plus in Genesis, two genders, not 58 genders as we sometimes see in the world today. In fact, COVID, all the reports from COVID are 
coming back to the fact that, man, this is how COVID affects the male and the female. There's two genders. God's designed it this way. God concurs, and it's a man and a woman coming together in God, ordained in holy union. Marriage is two people coming together to be made one. That, that's what it says in Mark chapter 10. That's what it says in Genesis chapter 2. That's what it says in different accounts of the Gospels. This is what marriage truly is. It's two flesh supernaturally coming together as one. That's a miracle of the Lord in itself. It's like soldering, fusing two pipes together that, you know, you fuse two pipes together, the water flows freely to the rest of the house. It's like fusing two lives together with the Holy Spirit being the solder, allowing the life of Jesus to flow through that house and, and nourish those around. It's maybe a bad illustration, but it's sort of like a, an ice cream machine, a soft ice cream machine. You got the chocolate, you got the vanilla, and you got that special little lever in the middle, right? The swirl. And both are wonderful on their own, but the swirl creates something unique and special and it's intertwined and you can't separate the two and it creates a whole different flavor that is special, I guess is what you could say. And it's appealing and that's what marriage is, is that's what God designed marriage to be. So much more than a contract, like our bell phone contract where you sign it and as soon as it doesn't work for you anymore, you go and try and rearrange things or maybe even cancel it and go with another company. That's not what marriage is. It's God bringing two lives together to be in unison with him and with each other. And since God designed marriage, God also defines marriage. I know this is kind of a struggle for some of you to even wrap your minds around because this is new for you. Just stick with me. Don't get frustrated yet. Yeah, this, is, this is God's word to us to help you see the way that he's designed life to be most lived to the full for the most blessing and the most uh, privilege in your life. Here's what God defines marriage as this. The covenant vows between a man and a woman whereby they pledge their soul allegiance after to God to one another only. It's a covenant a vows between a man and a woman whereby they pledge their sole allegiance after God to one another only. It's really backed by the traditional vows of marriage. I just did a marriage ceremony last week and here's the vows that the young man and young woman used. It's really showing us the full reality of what marriage is in God's eyes and you've seen them before. I, husband, take you, wife, or I, wife, take you, husband, to be my wedded wife or husband to have and to hold from this day forward for better or for worse, for richer or poorer in sickness and health, to love and to cherish, get this, till death do us part, according to God's holy ordinance, I hereby commit myself or pledge myself to you. This is what God intended marriage to be. It's not the way the world sees it. The world defines marriage as all kind of, kinds of things, but God's law trumps everything. And it's seeing, this is what God's, God's law says marriage truly is before the holy God creator and sustainer of the universe. Let me just stop here for a minute and just kind of help you unpack this a little bit. Here's what marriage truly is. And if you're married this morning, this, this is what your marriage ought to be before God that others can see the truth of Jesus in you. If you're not married this morning, this is what you're maybe one day aiming to have in your life as you think about a mate and choose a mate, but this is what God's plan for marriage is. Marriage, first and foremost, is not even a commitment to love each other. It's a vow before God. It's the most solemn and sacred vows you can make apart from your profession of faith and allegiance to Jesus Christ. 
Malachi 2 tells us that God takes marriage seriously and your commitment to your spouse actually reveals your understanding, your true understanding of God himself. If you think of the word vow in the Bible, it's an intense word. It's a your word, your oath, your integrity, your life. And when you get married, you're actually committing yourself to your spouse before God. God is your witness and God is your stamp or your seal of approval. Before even to your spouse, this is about God and your relationship with him. Here's the second thing. Marriage is a reflection of God's covenant with his children. It's not, it's not even a simple like, oh, I love you and you're kind of cute. Why don't we just like see if this works out? This is, it's a picture of God's covenant relationship with his children. It reflects the tight unity and the bond and the relationship between God and his people. We see this in Isaiah 54, verses 5 and 6. Hosea 2, 14, and 14 to 23, we see a picture of how deeply God loves his children. He called Israel to be his children. He said, you know what? You are going to be mine and I'm going to be yours and nothing is going to take my love away from my people. See, another picture of this in Ephesians chapter 5 in the New Testament, Jesus and his bride, the church. And we're called to love our spouses as Christ loved the church sacrificially. How did Christ love the church? He died on the cross for his people. He gave himself wholly for his people that that love can, cannot be seen really practically in a greater way anywhere else in the world but through Jesus and his love for the church. It's a picture of your love for your spouse, our marriages are supposed to be a reflection of God's love for his people, Jesus' love for the church. That's why we choose rings, to be honest. Usually at a wedding, you say there's a ring and it's a symbol of the eternal love of God, no beginning, no end that God has for us. If we're born again believers, Christ died on the cross for our sins and took all of our punishment. What, what kind of love is that? That's a supernatural, only from God kind of love and that's what our marriage is supposed to reflect as we live together with our spouse. That type of love that we've received from God now flows to the, our spouse. The world steps back and goes, that is a unique type of love that can only come from God. It's a reflection of God's covenant with his children. It's also this. It reveals the magnificence of God. Marriage, yes, it's wonderful. It's fantastic. And yet, ultimately, marriage is supposed to reveal the magnificence of God. It's, it's like when you stand outside at night and you see the beautiful sunset and you're like, oh my goodness, that's gorgeous but you know that there's a creator behind the sunset and it just causes you to look a little higher to the heavens. Like, man, isn't God awesome? It's the same thing in marriage. It's, it's like when you're driving through the mountains and you see a nice calm lake and you're looking at the lake and you're like, what a beautiful lake. But then you see the reflection of the mountains in the lake. You look at the lake and you're like, oh, but look at the mountain. And your kind of eyes come up to the mountain. You're like, magnificent. That, that's what our marriages are supposed to be. As people look at our marriages, they're supposed to be looking and seeing a, a picture of the character of God and the love of God and the union that man has with God through Jesus Christ, the splendor of God. In fact, John Piper says this, God's supreme ambition for your marriage is not your happiness, but his glory. And when you pursue his glory, your happiness just flows out of that reality. Your ultimate happiness comes in marriage as God is glorified. The more Jesus is glorified, the more joy you have in your marriage. Here's the last thing. Marriage is for our mutual joy and benefit. Remember back to creation. What did God say when he created man and woman? Everything was good, right? Man and woman was very good. Marriage is a part of that very good of man and woman. Don't believe the sitcoms that all seem to say that the only unhappy people are the married people and that's boring and that's annoying. That's not how God designed marriage to be. 
In fact, God says marriage is unlike any other union and relationship on the planet. It's intended as a foundational relationship to find mutual love and support physically and mentally and socially and relationally and spiritually. That's what marriage is. It's a foundational institution on which society would be blessed and established. What's marriage? It's sharing life. It's Yes, procreation, having children, it's honoring God and serving God together with your partner for the glory of God. This is biblical marriage captured in verses six to eight. And this is a broad topic. I'm just remember, giving you a foundation here. I'm not covering all the bases, so just giving you a foundation. But stop and think of this with me for a moment. If this is God's biblical picture of marriage, Is that what you're living out in your home? Married people? Unmarried, is this what you're aiming for when you're looking for a spouse? Let me talk to the unmarried first. Before you get all caught up in this and get all bent out of shape and anxious that now you have to find your spouse and it's so important you find your spouse, you're not living in God's will. Can I just say this to you, unmarried uh, friends? If you get this, you'll get the rest, but you are completely whole and complete in and of yourself in Jesus Christ. You don't need anyone to complete you. You don't need anyone to bring you more satisfaction. You have everything you need in Jesus Christ. You're valued and you're loved just as you are. And there's nothing wrong with being unmarried. As some Christian circles put all this pressure on being married, there's nothing wrong with being unmarried. God loves you. He's made you fully you to enjoy him that he might enjoy you. And, and yet if he brings a partner into your life, know this. You're not aiming for the hottest guy on the market or the best girl you can find that that meets all of your needs. Here's what you're aiming for. You're aiming for one who loves Jesus with all their heart, who understands what a biblical marriage is that you together can then thrive in pursuing Jesus and pursuing not building your kingdom, but his kingdom here on earth. And until that time, I encourage you just... Be a man of integrity. Be a woman of character and be who God's called you to be and then you bring that to the marriage and point each other towards Jesus and you win. See, young people get this all bent out of shape and taken different directions. Just start there, unmarried friends. If you're married this morning, if you're married this morning, let me stop and and, and ask you this. How is your marriage reflecting the glory of God? How are your how is your two lives being fused together as one for the purposes of God? Know this, brothers and sisters who are married, your marriage is not an add-on to your life. It's not a compartment of your life. God says your relationship with him is first and foremost, and out of that flows your relationship with your spouse. The three are intertwined that cannot be separated. And so God's purpose for your life is to love your God and love your spouse and yes, serve your spouse and meet each other's needs and again, not build your own kingdom here on earth but aim to build God's kingdom and to let the world see God through not just your own life but through your marriage. Your marriage should be whispering and shouting to the world the reality of an eternal God who loves like no other. 
built on mutual respect and the characteristics of God and the qualities of God as God grows his life in you, that ought to be overflowing into your marriage. This, and you ought to be committed to your marriage more than anyone else on the planet. You ought to be committed to your marriage and not looking left or right, but committed to God and your spouse for the glory of God. We're gonna come back to some of these things in a minute here, so let me just keep going for a second, but... I want to remind you this, brothers and sisters who are married, your marriage is holy and sacred before God. You you can't see it any other way. You can't diminish it or minimize it. Your marriage is paramount in your life before God. Some of you maybe need to up, up your level of commitment to your marriage even today. Up your view of marriage. Increase your intensity in your marriage and your desire for your spouse. Praying that out of this sermon, even that would be a win uh, for you this morning. This is what biblical marriage is, but the passage is really talking about divorce. This passage is is partly about the biblical foundation for marriage, but it's also talking about the the, the sanctity of marriage and how God is not a proponent of divorce in any marriage. Here's point number two. Divorce undermines God's heart for marriage. I know now we're getting a little closer to some squirming and some hurt and some pain and so I'm going to walk through this a little bit more tenderly than maybe I walk through the first section but bear with me I'm doing my best I can't see your faces I like to see your faces I like to kind of read the audience I can't do that right now so I'm trusting in the Lord to really help me to help me communicate this in a truthful way but also in a loving way in a compassionate way showing you that God's heart for you in what I'm going to say here is not to harm you but to help you as you navigate life Understanding the reality of marriage. So look at verses one to five with me. Here's what it says here. The subtitle says, teaching about divorce. I like to balance it, so I tell you about marriage, but here's divorce. And Jesus left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond, and beyond the Jordan. And the crowds gathered to him again, and again, as his custom was, he taught them, and the Pharisees came up to him in order to test him. Notice the Pharisees aren't like, hey, Jesus, what's this about marriage? They came up to test him, and they asked this. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because you're of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, we already covered, God made marriage. So the first part of this is, is really clear that... Pharisees are coming up to Jesus. Who are the Pharisees? Remember the legalistic sect of the Jews who are known for their strict devotion to the ceremonial law. They're coming up and they're not asking innocent questions. They're trying to trap Jesus. They're like, man, how can we take this guy down? I know, this is an important one. We'll ask him about marriage. It was an antagonistic question. It was like, man, if we can pin him in the corner, then we'll get him by the throat. You have to understand the motives of the Pharisees. They were trying to rip Jesus down, and so they knew that there's two sides of this equation. There were some that, Jewish people that thought you could divorce for any reason. There was others that thought it was only for adulterous reasons, and so they were hoping that Jesus would maybe say there was no reason for a divorce at all and get all of them mad at him and they'd split. Or bare minimum, he'd choose one side over the other, and at least half of them would then be turning against Jesus. In fact, probably deeper than that, they were hoping Jesus would say to them, Take the stance of John the Baptist. Remember John the Baptist and, and uh, his stance when it came to Herod Antipas? And he was married to his half-brother's wife, Herodias. John said, you can't marry someone divorced, and that cost him his head. And probably underlying all this was a 
Pharisees thinking, if we can get him on that page, we can run to the authorities and done for good. Notice Jesus, though. You just have to notice this in the text. Notice how Jesus, he knows he's being trapped. He knows it's a setup, but instead of like jumping all over them, instead of making them look foolish, instead of powering over them, some of you take notes on this because in our social media accounts, we seem to like want to jump on people and scream at them and even in face-to-face interactions, like, you don't get it, you moron. Jesus didn't do that. Look what he did. He just asked him a simple question. He made his point very loud and clear, but he asked him a simple question. He said, what does Moses say about this? In other words, what's the law of Moses say? And we know that God's law trumps the law of Moses, but the law of Moses falls right along with God's law. They said, they said it's okay as long as you have a certificate of divorce. Kind of sounds strange, doesn't it, to you? Like, is that true? Did Moses really say that? Or is this... Pharisees, like we often do, are trying to put little twists on it to serve their own needs and meet their own agendas. And what's going on here? Well, the passage at hand is Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 to 4. That's the passage that they're really quoting in this text. And somehow, by the time Jesus came around, the Hillel law had taken that text from Moses that he was talking about divorce, and they had basically made it say that you could divorce for any reason at all. And so that was kind of the custom of the day. The men could divorce the women for any reason at all. Dinner wasn't cooked right, gonzo. Maybe they put on a little extra weight. Mm, Not jiving anymore. Maybe, Maybe they found a more attractive woman down the road or maybe they thought their wife was a bit of a diva or a little annoying. So like, get rid of her. Moses was actually writing this law at the time to actually not encourage divorce, but to make it difficult for the men who were prone to toss their wives for no reason at all. And Jesus is affirming that, that Moses actually wrote that law for that very reason. Interesting to note, back in this time too, women on the other hand couldn't divorce their husbands at all for any reason. Guy could be a big oaf, doesn't matter. He could be a big bombastic bravado punk. It didn't matter. He could not treat her nice. He could be an arrogant jerk. It it didn't matter. So what Moses was doing and what Jesus was reinforcing is he was trying to make it really difficult for men to divorce, but also trying to, but also trying to protect the helpless wife who could easily be tossed aside. And to make sure that husbands weren't saying, well, she committed adultery and got this on my, and she committed adultery. And so that was punishable by death back then. They actually had to go to all the effort of getting a paper and actually putting the real reason why they're getting divorced in. And that would, if it wasn't adultery, that would free the woman's reputation. It would free her to meet again. But this, all this stuff was to protect marriage and not discard marriage. That's how the Pharisees made everything seem whatever they wanted it to seem. Some of us are really good at it, eh? Jesus is saying that's not what it meant at all. In fact, one commentator says this, they're trying to limit the problem of divorce, not to serve as license for the practice. And you're like, this is messed up. Like, was it really messed up back then? It was. Well, what was going on? It says it right here. It's the hardness of people's hearts, just like today. There's a permission for divorce only because of the hardness or the rebelliousness or the malicious evil intent of people's hearts. So rather than trapping somebody in a marriage where the person is intent on sinning, in adultery, God, through Moses, is trying to protect people and marriages. 
interesting. It's not just the Old Testament. There's boundaries around divorce. New Testament, very clear. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 19, there's one reason for divorce, and that's from adultery. The, the unrepentant husband or wife who just stuck in that and won't turn away, then that's grounds for divorce. The other allowance in the New Testament is for abandonment. If there's a believing spouse living with an unbelieving spouse, there's a call to live at peace with them. If the unbeliever leaves and takes off and goes their own merry way, the believer then is released from that contract and okay to go ahead and carry on with their lives. It says that in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 12 to 15. It's, it's adultery, it's abandonment. Here's the third one, it's, it's abuse. That's the one I always get as a pastor. Well, does abuse count? Does abuse count? Honestly, there's no passage in Scripture that says abuse counts in this context, so it would be pretty arrogant of me to go ahead and suggest that that would be true. Here's what I would say, though. The Bible is clear that God does not condone any abuse of any kind, whether it's mentally or emotionally or physically. And so when it comes to a spouse in an abusive situation, here's what the mandate, I believe, is from Scripture. Sound the alarm, be safe, and get help. Do you hear that? Sound the alarm, be safe, and get help, and try and get your spouse help and Maybe if they don't find help or not open to help, maybe that shows they're an unbeliever and maybe then there's some grounds for a divorce in there. But the reality is in Scripture, there's adultery and abandonment. And you have to understand this about divorce. God permits divorce, but he never commands divorce. God permits it, but he never commands it. It's not like you can wait and say, Aha! Finally, I got you caught. I set you up and I caught you and you've maybe cheated or you've been watching something you shouldn't have. So I'm getting divorced. That's not the heart of the matter. The other side of things, I've heard of this too. The husband is kind of a domineering, can't think of an adjective right now, but domineering jerk, we'll say. And I can be like this because God doesn't permit divorce. So the wife can be an overbearing woman and well, I can do whatever I want in your life and you can't divorce me. The Bible says that's not the heart of this either. What he's trying to say is marriage is for keeps. And our goal as married couples is not to try and find ways out, but ways to keep our marriage together. Whatever we can do on our part to, to enhance our marriage and submit to the other person and serve the other person and love the other person, even when it hurts, that's what God's desire for our marriages is. It's the path to fulfillment, the path to joy, and the path to ultimate satisfaction. A marriage is not two people doing their thing 50-50. It's two people, 100%, 100%, seeking to love God and love their spouse in all the ways God's called them. That is what a marriage truly is before God. That's what God desires for our marriage. And that sounds hard, doesn't it? But you know what God's saying in this passage? Harder than that, the flip side of that is a divorce. Is the pain the betrayal, the hurt, the rejection, the family's torn apart of divorce. That pain, my brothers and sisters, is real. I think I've cried over that pain of divorce. This is why God says don't divorce because it's catastrophic for souls and for families and for people around. The shrapnel flies. That's why we weep so much over divorce. I think I have wept more over divorce than I have over death. You know why? 
Because for death, it's actually a passage to eternal bliss. It's a beautiful thing in the long run, but divorce is a path towards the ugly pit in so many different ways. It's so hard. It's so hurtful. What God is saying in this to us is divorce is a last resort within the right parameters, but for those of us who are married, let's pursue this. Let's fight for our marriages. Let's never stop hoping for better days. Let's, let's do this. Instead of dreaming about the grass green on the other side, let's water our own grass the best way we know how. This is God's heart for us in our marriage. This is so important to our lives, our relationship with God, even our spiritual lives. God established marriage. He prohibits divorce because he loves us and wants the best for our lives. I know some of you are thinking right now, so it's good for those who have good marriages, but what about me? I'm in trouble. It's not working. It's so hard. What, what, what? Divorce seems like the only way out. Here's, here's, here's the what, what, what. Trust this today that God, the God who rescued your soul, the God who breathed life into your dead heart spiritually is the same God that can breathe love into your heart again for your spouse. As God's love pours down upon you, as God's love pours down on your spouse, he can make two loveless hearts beat again with the fullness of his love. That's the miracle of the Lord that he does often, more often than we know, if we just humble ourselves and ask him, if you're in a tough place today, I can encourage you with this, call the spiritual 911 and Jesus will be at your doorstep quicker than you could, the EMT will be there if you call a real 911. God is in the business of restoring struggling marriages. Even if you're not at the point of divorce and you're, you're struggling to get along and, and marriage seems harder than it should most days and that D word has come up and I encourage you not to use that D word has come up. Here's, here's a good place to start. You, you call out to God and three things. Be humble, get help, and live hope. Be humble, get help, and live hope. Be humble, what I'm saying is this, like every marriage is two sides. Own your side. Apologize for your wrongs and your misgivings. Do what you can do to make the marriage better. It's amazing. Two humble people before God saying, God, help me. God, I want this to work. God, I need you. That can make a marriage work better than Dr. Phil, that's for sure. Be humble. Remember that marriage is here to sanctify you. Allow God to sanctify you and mold you and shape you and draw you near to him through your marriage. What about this one? Get help. Get help. So many people, like, here's, here's simple it is, like, I need help. I need help. Like, like, jump in a prayer room at the end of this. I need help. Send one of our staff an email. I need help. Get to a counselor in the community. I need help. Call a trusted brother or sister in the faith, I need help. We can't do this by ourselves. We need each other to strengthen and encourage each other in this walk of faith, in this walk of marriage. Here's the last one. Live hope. Believe that God can redeem anything. There's better days ahead. You don't know what's gonna happen next month. You don't know what's gonna happen next year. A very close friend of mine two years ago found himself in an adulterous relationship. 
He kept calling me up for, for advice, and he kept saying, well, she can get out, right? She can get out, right? Why doesn't she get out? Like, I'd rather die than live in this. And I kept saying, you got to keep going. you got to trust God. Pray hard and just keep going, keep going, keep going. Guess what? Two years later, they're actually doing pretty good. It's not perfect. It's rough. There's off days and on days. But, man, God is bringing them together. There's always hope. You know, some of you are thinking today, well, what if there is no hope? What if my marriage is dead and buried? Then what? Then what? Know this this morning. Divorce is not the unforgivable sin. Seek repentance. Seek healing from God. Even seek restoration if possible. God forgives for all of our mistakes. God heals the most broken heart of anyone in watching this video. God can heal that broken heart. And God can even restore relationships. I, for the first time of my ministry career last fall, married two people who were married who were divorced and God brought them back together again and they re, reclaimed their vows and regave their vows before the Lord a couple years, three, four years after they got divorced. What a picture of God's grace for our lives. We wander, he brings us back. We, we fail, he, he still loves us. This is the God that we serve. By God's grace, know this. Your divorce doesn't define you and it doesn't decide your future. Jesus does. Oswald Chambers said this, there's no circumstance so dark and complicated, no life so twisted that God cannot put it right. You hear me? There's no circumstance so dark and complicated, there's no life so twisted that God cannot put it right. This is the God we serve. He gave us these directives and by the grace of Jesus, he will help us and he'll even restore us when we ask and when our hearts are humble before him. So important, so important. Here's the last point, here's the last point. Just know this at this point, marriage is a big deal to God. Marriage ought to be a big deal for us as well. Here's the last point. It's a big deal before God to divorce and remarry. Got to qualify this, another person. It's a big deal before God to divorce and remarry another person. This question comes up a lot and God answers it here. And So after he has this big discourse with the Pharisees, the disciples are watching, they go back to the house where they're just gathered together alone and they ask him about this matter and he said this to them, Jesus did. Remember, these are red letters. These are Jesus' words. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery against him. It's a real stumbling block for a lot of people and it really kind of seems to say that well, once you're divorced, you can't remarry. Is that what it's saying? If you read it in context, that's exactly what it's saying. And remember I said divorce is messy and it hurts. This is one of those Messy consequences of divorce. God has given us allowances. As I said, if a spouse is on the wrong side of a cheating spouse, then they're given the right to divorce and remarry and they're off the hook. The cheating spouse, though, is not quite so fast, young man or young woman. Again, someone asked me in the last couple of years, well, I cheated. My wife can just divorce me and I can move on, right? And I was like, but that's not what the scripture says. The scripture says if you want to remarry, you go back and make it right with your wife the best way you know how. If she at this point cannot do that, then you are called to live 
a single life the rest of your life. And that means I'm supposed to be a monk or I'm supposed to be a spinster. I know it's tough, I know it's awkward and it's messy, but you're supposed to live forgiven in the grace of God, for the glory of God, realizing that your life is now you and God until you meet him. I know this hits a lot of controversial views, and again, you're not saying your sins can't be forgiven. They can. The guilt's gone. The shame's gone. But the reality is the spouse that's been cheated on can remarry. The spouse that's been abandoned can remarry. And if you're one of those people on the other side, though, then think really hard before you make decisions that are going to ruin your marriage because according to God's word, you have one solid crack at it. Make the most of it. It's not that bad. In fact, it's very good if you do it God's way and you get your heart humble before the Lord. And what happens though if, what happens though if I've already been divorced and that was wrong and I'm remarried and what do you do then? Or what happens if you can't go back and make things right with your spouse? Well, if you're divorced and it wasn't biblical, but you're remarried, well, surely God doesn't want you to go and break up another marriage and divorce again to try and fix it. That's not it. It's a repent of that sin, admit that it started wrong, and say, God, forgive us. Help us move forward in a God-honoring way. May our lives be from this day forward dedicated to Jesus. May this marriage be a God-honoring one. May this marriage show the glory of Jesus Christ. So many scenarios, I can't hit them all today. And again, I'm trying to give you a bit of an understanding, but this is the word of the Lord. There's a reason why we preach through texts, verse by verse, so we don't skip the hard ones. This is a tempting one to skip. But know this, brothers and sisters, this may be hard to swallow. This might be a little confusing. This isn't my idea. This is God's will for your life. This is a heavenly father showing you the way to live. That you might know blessing and you might know purpose and meaning and fulfillment and joy and satisfaction. This is God loving you. That you might honor him with every aspect of your lives. Yeah, it's heavy, but it's good. Maybe hurts a little, brings a little conviction, but it's right. This is the path that God established from the beginning of time. We've wandered so far off in the forest, we've forgotten there's a path. It's overgrown, but there's still a path. It's a narrow path. It's not very wide. It hasn't been walked on very often, but this is the path God calls us to walk on, the path that leads to Jesus. Can I invite you, brothers and sisters, wherever you are, to just to get on this path, whatever you've done in the past, wherever you've come from, wherever you find yourself, just from today forward, decide, I'm gonna walk the path of Jesus. I'm gonna accept his forgiveness for all of my sins and all of my flaws. We all have them for all of my mistakes, maybe as devastating as they've been. I'm gonna, I'm gonna follow Jesus. I'm gonna ask that he makes my heart beat with his, that he helps me love my spouse, that he helps me walk in wholeness wherever I am, that he helps me walk in wholeness before him, that I would know the life and the love of Jesus and first and foremost, he would define my life, he would grow my life, my life would be found in him and my everything found in him and out of that, 
Everything else will fall into place. Oh, God, help us today. Help us first be convinced that this is your path. Please, God, speak to us. Help us be convicted that this is right and help us be committed to, yes, this is the way I will live before the Lord in humble submission to him for his glory and for my best at heart. Jesus, clearly from this, is 100% sold out to marriage. And he invites us on this path to know this. God's grace is deep enough. His power is strong enough. And his love is great enough to give us all that we need in our own lives and in our marriages to live for him. That's the power of the cross. That's the gospel. Jesus died to cover over all of my sin. And he rose again to empower me to a new life that I could walk in the fullness of Jesus Christ. May I pray. Father, make this text come alive in our hearts. Father, where there is repentance that's needed, oh God, give holy conviction where people be drawn to you, drawn to the grace of Jesus, the loving arms of Jesus. Father, where there's refinement that needs to be needed in lives and marriages, oh God, do that work in us right now. May we, may we humble ourselves and admit that, that maybe we haven't been treating our spouse right or we haven't been looking at marriage the right way. Oh God, forgive us and give us a renewed perspective. Give us renewed love, God, for those marriages that are thriving. Oh Father, make them thrive even more in Jesus Christ. Make us beacons of light as we live together under your, under your banner, Lord, that others would see Jesus through our lives. God, for those unmarried here, may, Lord, may they not buy into this cultural reality that they have to be married to be full. May they find their fullness in you, oh God, and, and may, they, may they strive to, to live their lives under your guidance and Lord as you bring people into their lives may they also adopt this view and and start their marriages strong and healthy in the eyes of the Lord oh God take this text apply to every one of our hearts and ultimately God I pray that we see the wonder and the truth and the grace and the way that leads to everlasting life through Mark 10 1 to 12 we love you God thank you thank you God now minister to us and speak to us And draw us into your will, in Jesus' name, amen.